This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He finds enablers in the judiciary everywhere. One of the few positive things Donald has done is shine a very bright light on the extent to which all of our systems are broken and the ways in which they're weak. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law, the Supreme Court, and suddenly the law of special masters. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the law for Slate. And even though on this show we've spent the summer gorging on great books, we are not blind to the fact that the former president of the United States kept classified documents at his golf club, refused to return them, lied about it, and may or may not have exposed, like, you know, sources and methods, as well as nuclear secrets of allies or enemies, as one does in the summer. Uh, This show returns thus to an old favorite theme, the law of Trump, or does such a thing even exist? Later on in the show, Slate Plus subscribers will delight to the dulcet tones of our own Mark Joseph Stern as he and I review some of the week's lawlessness at Mar-a-Lago, a judicial order from Texas that seemingly implicates HIV drugs, but actually tries to crater the ACA again. And we probe whether reckless judging is, in fact, contagious. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. If you'd like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and if never hitting a paywall for any of Slate's articles sounds good to you, too, do go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you, by the way, for supporting the work that we do here at the magazine. But first to the main show, which I guess we might just call Law versus Lawless, the Judge Eileen Cannon edition. Our two guests are each experts in what I think of as the law of Trump. Mary Trump is a psychologist and author. Her first book, Too Much and Never Enough, was the most lucid and clear portrait of the former president, her uncle, by the way, that I have ever read. Her recent book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, is a really phenomenal deep dive into American trauma, history, PTSD, and redemption. Norm Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been involved in political reform for decades upon decades, particularly campaign finance, election reform, and House and Senate reform. Norm's books include the New York Times and Washington Post bestsellers, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported, with E.J. Dion and Thomas Mann. Both Norm and Mary are part of an amazing secret society that shows up peripatetically on Mary's podcast. We call ourselves the Nerd Avengers, and we show up largely, I think, to ask this timeless question, why isn't Donald Trump in jail right now? This is, in other words, I think, a show about what is law, 
and what is politics, whether there is even a difference anymore, and what to do about it. So both Norm and Mary, welcome. I'm so happy to have you both here, but having you both here together is making my brain explode. Welcome, welcome to Amicus. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Norm. It's so good to be with you, Adalia. I will say, watching the ceremony at the White House of the unveiling of the Obama portraits with President Biden, recognizing that longstanding tradition had been broken by Donald Trump when he was president, and my reaction was, I just hope that the Trump portrait will be his mugshot. Uh, so, Mary, I actually quite literally want to start with you where I just started, which is, why isn't Donald Trump in jail, Mary? Oh, that is the question of our times. Um, well, he never has been. I think that is the foundational reason. This is a man who should have been in prison decades ago. He certainly should have been indicted for something. And this is just what happens, I think, when there's no accountability, which leaves the room for these countervailing forces to get momentum and to change the subject. And we see in this most recent ruling by this hack of a judge, Eileen Cannon, she, by postponing what should have happened, she gives room for Donald's enablers and supporters to act as if everything's fine. I mean, if it were that bad, right, then nobody could possibly have made that ruling. Clearly, he must have some right to these documents. And this is the same thing that happens time after time. If it were that bad, then something would have happened already. Wouldn't it have? And I think it just underscores that the real problem is the system, which is you, Dahlia, have said recently is working exactly as it was designed to. But for those of us who have a problem with that, it's incredibly demoralizing. Mary, there's something so profound actually buried in what you just said, which is people look at what Judge Cannon does and say, well, there must be both sides here. There must be two legitimate sides because, after all, a federal judge has just issued a stay. But then Judge Cannon, in her order says, essentially, people are upset and alarmed, and this seems worrisome, so let's, like, pump the brakes. So in a way, you've got a feedback loop of normalizing, right, where she is relying on the fact that people are horrified to justify stopping this process. People who are horrified are saying, well, if she stops the process, we must be right. So there is an almost perfect circle of reinforcement there. Yeah, absolutely. And then to clarify, the people she and others like her are catering to are those who are inclined to want to get Donald off the hook. And unfortunately, there is still a significant minority of those people in America at large and 100% of elected Republicans specifically are eager for Donald to continue for their various reasons. It suits their purposes to have Donald above the law. Dahlia, let me, I want to follow on that in a couple of ways. What struck me over the course of Trump's life, Donald Trump's life, and Mary's book reflects this, as do others, is it's a lifetime of grifting. And he has managed to, and partly this is the culture of New York, but it's also broader, he's managed to pay off judges and prosecutors to intimidate people, Michael Cohen, the enforcer, and in other ways, 
And one of the stories that struck me the most, it's a minor part of the grifting, was that he used to buy jewelry at the Bulgari shop in Trump Tower and did this scam of having them certify that it was actually being sent from the Florida store so he wouldn't have to pay sales tax. It got uncovered, was his scheme. He really basically pushed the employees there to do it. They got punished and he didn't. And that's the history of his life. And I think we see with his increasingly hysterical missives on Truth Social and elsewhere that he is now actually frightened that this long-time, lifetime pattern of getting off from his schemes, criminal schemes, may be coming to an end. But what we also see with Judge Cannon is that he finds enablers in the judiciary everywhere. And here you have a woman who manifestly does not belong on the bench, who was jammed through days after he lost the election, put in place because she was a longtime member of the Federalist Society and was barely 40, or actually under 40 when she was there, never should have taken this case in the first place. It was the most blatant example of shopping for the right judge that we've seen in a long time. Interestingly, when this first came up, she actually mentioned that asking what, you know, gave us a little bit of hope, the pointed question, why are we here instead of with the magistrate judge? And then not only took the case, but issued this execrable ruling. But it's not likely to stand. And I think the noose is tightening in so many venues in New York, in Georgia, and with this federal case. And we're now seeing a level of criminality that is just shocking beyond even what we might have imagined. I want to come back to you on one point, Norm, and then I do want to ask Mary, because I think Mary knows the sort of life of grifting and somehow untouchableness, uh, that story better than the rest of us. But I do want to say on the structural question, because it does feel, and, and I felt it so acutely this summer, and we've talked about it on Mary's show, but there's this kind of the highs of the net closing and then the lows of something intervening and that sort of sense of inevitability that you're just reflecting and then that sense of it being arrested. But it's always arrested because of anti-democratic structures. And as you just said, somebody tweeted, I think on Thursday night, that the only publication that Judge Cannon listed in her judicial application was an interview she did about her wedding announcement. She had never published an interview. So, like, this is the most shoddily inappropriate person to be deciding major questions of national security. But as you just said, and I just want you to pull on it a bit, Norm, this is a structures problem. We are in thrall to a federal judiciary that can simply leap in. The DOJ has the president dead to rights. He has taken classified documents. They are not his. They belong to the executive branch. He has refused to return them after painstaking efforts for the National Archives to save face, and then lied about all of it. He's likely compromised national security in ways we will never know about, but it's so bad. And a single judge strolls onto the stage, takes it away from both the magistrate judge and the judge in D.C., where this appropriately resides, and then just sticks a fork in the whole thing. And I guess my question for you is, as somebody who's been writing about 
all the ways in which democracy is thwarted, this kind of rule by juristocracy is crippling. And it is something that I don't think, and I say this as somebody who's been writing about the inviolable juristocracy for a long time, I don't think we're having serious conversations about fixing that structural problem at all. I couldn't agree more. And there was another interesting development along similar lines. Judge Reed O'Connor, who infamously had basically ruled that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, just issued a ruling that said that PrEP, so these are the drugs that prevent HIV transmission, cannot be forced as part of the Affordable Care Act's formulary for religious reasons, because people think that it's only for homosexuals and homosexuality is immoral and therefore they don't have to prescribe it. And it gets to a larger point that you've made, which is it is insane that a single district court judge can enjoin the entire country in an important action or can rule in the way that Judge O'Connor has. And this is in Congress's purview. And one of the things, you know, we have a lot of discussion about enlarging the court, and we have some discussion about term limits for Supreme Court justices. Nobody has effectively talked about the jurisdiction of the courts, which is totally in, with a very few exceptions, the original jurisdiction given in the Constitution of the Supreme Court. Congress can determine what appellate jurisdiction is. They can, by legislation, say, no, we're not going to let some insane district court judge who is ruling only because of forum shopping by extremists to basically rule over the entire country. And they can take away some of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction as well. We are now in a world where the bias that exists in all of our institutions, an anti-democratic bias, some of it built in, but it was kept in check by the norms in the system, and the norms have disappeared, and now you have a sizable share of the country willing to use these structural anomalies to basically rule over the rest of the country, even though it goes against what the vast majority of Americans want or against what we would view as the rule of law. And this is a crisis point, and I can only hope that we will get a Congress that will be willing to address some of this. And I'll just I'll make one other point while we're on this subject. We know that the Supreme Court is going to rule on one part of this independent state legislature's theory, this obscure wacko theory, which was first applied to electors. But now it's very possible, maybe even likely, that they're going to apply it to state legislatures and Congress, that in effect, State courts or state constitutions are irrelevant if the state legislature, narrowly defined as that legislature, takes an action. And that action can be unconstitutional. It doesn't matter. But what it ignores, and we've seen this play out multiple times, and there's now a brief in this case that basically says Congress can do nothing about this, ignoring the explicit language of the Constitution. State legislatures can regulate uh, state elections, except Congress can overrule them. Congress has the ultimate power over the time, manner, and place of federal elections. And if this Supreme Court takes this extreme position, I would say as a Congress, 
Okay. You know, what you're basically saying is no courts, including the Supreme Court, can overrule what Congress does on elections and voting. Therefore, Citizens United, Shelby County, and all their progeny are no longer in effect because you have no role to overrule what we have done in Congress. I'd like to see a Congress with the guts to do this, but I think the court is pushing such a radical agenda. And we've seen Justice Alito do his kind of victory dance in Rome, basically saying, screw the rest of you, we've got the votes, that we've got a crisis that can only be resolved if you have a Congress with the guts to do something about it. We're going to take a brief break for some words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Mary, before we turn to you on trauma, and I, God, your book is so beautifully written, and I really want people to read it because I think as I read it, I realize that I am in trauma, I think, which was your point. But I do want to stay with Norm's observation, because I know it's something that you have been saying time and time and time again. Like, we can't just complain. We have to fix things. Everything needs to be codified. If I had, you know, a Coke for every time you said that, I'd have no teeth left. And I just don't quite understand why there's such an appetite in the media for kind of describing whatever the tragedy du jour was, whatever the win was, the highs, the lows, without having the structural conversation that Norm is suggesting, if we do not have it, we're just going to have a big win-loss column and no democracy left. And I think you've been watching how the media has covered Donald so astutely. Why aren't we sitting around this week talking about how is it possible to forum shop and get a judge who quite literally sticks a fork into the single most important, not just criminal investigation, but national security inquiry in the history of this country? And why are we not all of us talking day and night about the kinds of judicial reforms and jurisdictional reforms that Norm is invoking? All really good questions. I'm I'm glad you still have teeth, because that would be... (laughs) Don't drink a Coke every time I say that. (laughs) It would be dangerous. Um, 
Or a glass of bourbon, because that uh, <laughs> although that would be might be more appropriate. That, that way, madness lies, and also solace. Okay, Mary. I think part of it is just a failure to grasp what is actually going on. You don't even have to go that deep, but if you don't feel that it's your job to dig it all, then you miss the red flag that Norm just spoke about. That literally one person can make decisions that affect. The entire country, I think back to the, I don't know which district she is, but she's out of Florida, who just lifted the mask mandate on planes, claiming the CDC didn't have jurisdiction over keeping American citizens safe from diseases, which is an interesting take on that. But I think a larger problem is that maybe it's just people who grew up in our generations, but we used to be able to equate media with journalism. And that connection started unraveling, not surprisingly, in the 80s in New York when Donald was on the front page of at least the New York Post practically every day for God knows how many years because it sold papers. And the coverage was incredibly superficial. The focus was on whatever myth he was spinning And there was no willingness or desire to go beyond that or behind it and report on what was really going on. And it's that failure. I think you you could actually say that it's that failure alone that has led us here. The Donald's ability to use the media to capitalize on the completely false portrait that was painted of him first by New York newspapers and then ultimately by Mark Burnett. That's something we're going to be dealing with for a long time, but it's also that coupled with the truth that there are always people smarter and more powerful than Donald who figured out how they can make use of him. Like if it were just Donald, he's not savvy. He has specific skills. I mean, he is quite good at manipulating the media. He's very good at finding people weaker than he is to carry his water for him. But if it weren't for people like Mark Burnett or the bankers at Deutsche Bank or Mitch McConnell or Vladimir Putin, I don't think Donald would have gotten as far as he's gotten. And I think that the original Sinner in that regard is my grandfather, of course. And it's just how this pattern has repeated over time that I still can't quite grapple with it, to be completely honest with you. But those two things together, the myth about him sells papers and other people in positions of power have figured out how to use him towards their own ends. And I think maybe I would ask both of you, because as Norm says, there's a pretty narrow grifting playbook on how to win all these lawsuits. You just buy judges, you bully weaker opponents, you wear them down with endless delay. I mean, it's a pretty standard, right? As many people have said on this show, I think, including Daniel Goldman, it's a pretty standard mob playbook of how to get through a legal system. But it does raise 
And maybe you'll start, Mary, just because your whole book is about privilege. The just inevitable reality that this works really well if you're wealthy and white. In fact, if you're wealthy and white, this playbook is kind of fail-safe. And Donald Trump, I think, is the poster boy for you can always hire another lawyer, even if your last 30 lawyers quit or were unpaid. You can hire someone. They will file the motion. They will go on TV. They will lie. In other words, if you are wealthy and privileged and famous, as you say, and if the media is willing to both sides it for you, then you skate. And in a country where nobody else gets to say, oh, my documents are private, I need a special master, or my feelings are hurt, or my reputational interests are so acute that you cannot proceed with the criminal investigation, no one gets that privilege. And so in a sense, I'm trying to pick through whether, in fact, the criminal justice system is just fundamentally broken because there's two tiers of justice, or whether, in fact, Donald Trump has just figured out the golden path through it so that there will never be accountability because somehow his privilege, his power, and the fact that people believe him will always exculpate him. First of all, I think that the system of justice in this country is broken. And one of the few positive things Donald has done is shine a very bright light on the extent to which all of our systems are broken and the ways in which they're weak. And in a sort of flip side of one person can make these egregious decisions that affect everybody, but we've seen in the January 6th committee, along the way, one person held the line. It wasn't the system. It was an individual, whether it's a 23-year-old woman or somebody with more power and experience. So there's that part of it, which I guess we should be grateful for, because the only way to change the system is to reimagine our institutions and figure out how they can work for everybody, which clearly they don't do. And what exemplifies that right now is as soon as we heard that Cannon was appointed by Donald, we knew that we weren't going to get a fair ruling based on the facts. And we didn't. And we had the same thing looking at the 11th circuit. Uh, I think six out of, I'm not sure how many, 11 or 13 of those judges were appointed by Donald. So we had the same quandary. Are we going to get a fair ruling out of that? And I don't know. <laughs> and that's a very scary state of affairs. And we see it at the state level too. We'll say, okay, the federal judiciary is broken, perhaps beyond repair right now. So are we going to get justice at the state level? And the answer to that question is it depends on the state. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of work. And as Norm said, it's going to take a Congress. And I think implied there is a democratic dominated Congress that is willing to look this in the face and say enough and no more. We have to start from scratch here. But on top of that, of course, is the fact that Donald has honed the skill of using the system to benefit him at the expense of everybody else for a very long time. And you couple that with America's egregious history of failing to hold powerful white men accountable. I mean, if you cannot hold Robert E. Lee accountable, then is it shocking that a century and a few decades later, you're not going to be holding somebody like Donald accountable. No, because 
people keep getting pardoned or people are allowed to rehabilitate themselves. I'm thinking of Nixon or George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. But what is of most import for the long term is the broken institution itself. So, uh, you know, just to add to that, of course, the Supreme Court, uh, the motto is equal justice under law. I was struck. We know that we have figures out there who are at least as pernicious as Donald, who are smarter and tougher, Ron DeSantis being one of them. He spends millions of Florida taxpayer dollars to do this investigation of voter fraud, finds 20 people who are basically felons who completed their sentences, who are allowed under the law to vote, who were told by election officials and the state that they were eligible to vote, and he frog marches them into jail. They did this believing in good faith that they were casting legitimate votes. Now, in the villages, this upper middle class conclave filled with Trumpists, we have multiple examples of direct and blatant voter fraud. People who cast multiple ballots for Trump knowing full well that they were violating the law. Have any of them been frog-marched? No. We know that the first instance of somebody in recent years who was caught casting an illegal ballot, but again, did it unknowingly, got a five-year jail sentence. And then when we see white people, rich ones, who do this knowingly, they get a slap on the wrist. They get probation and told, gee, you shouldn't do that. Don't do it again. And we look back at drug cases and so many things. It's just maddening to realize how obvious it is that we have two separate systems of justice. And we haven't grappled with it. We haven't done anything about it. And Trump is the poster child for all of this. But Roger Stone. How is Roger Stone not in jail? Obviously, because Trump pardoned him and he's also used his leverage and wealth to escape. We see this over and over again. And I'm actually quite struck that the rage level in communities of color isn't greater than it is given these obvious inequalities, inequities, and disparities. Well, I suspect the rage level is partly dampened by the fact that it's always been thus, right? This is not new. And also because the media doesn't care what the rage level in those communities are. And I was going to ask as a follow-on to what Mary just said, what is fundamentally warping the possibility of equal justice for all money, race, or celebrity? But I think both of you have just answered that question as yes. Uh, it's all. We will be right back after this short break. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Mary, I want to give you a chance because I don't know how you write so powerfully about sort of personal trauma and national trauma and the possibility of healing. That line really has been sitting with me since I read it in your second book. We are in trauma upon trauma upon trauma. We can't get out from under the COVID trauma. We can't get out from under January 6th. I'm still not quite recovered from the Muslim ban, to be honest. How do you move kind of through this and forward when it is increasingly evident that millions and millions of people are just not interested in reconciliation or reparation or repair or in trying to heal, but that in fact, like faced with off-ramp after off-ramp, your president is, in fact, it would seem, uh, selling national security secrets, still double down and say, you know, I would rather be on his side than on the side of Mary Trump. Well, yeah, I think the trauma of origin in, in this context is November 9th, 2016. But yes, then f- faster and faster and faster, it seemed more and more came at us. Muslim ban, putting children in concentration camps after s- kidnapping them, essentially. Charlottesville, on, on and on. And the list is just... uh ridiculously long. And I think the way to deal with it now is actually not a psychologically healthy thing to do, but we have to marshal our resources and that is to compartmentalize. We can't be thinking about all of this all of the time in order to stay in the fight and stay engaged. I'm not suggesting that we detach either because that's also bad. But we need to hope that there will be a time when we can unplug, step back, take a break and recover. Because one of the things I write about is that when you are continually being traumatized, you cannot heal from your trauma. Just you can't do that. And unfortunately, that's the case. But the good news is, and this is similar to how Donald uncovered things that's doing us a service, even though what we've learned is horrible. The same thing about Donald's quote-unquote election and what's happened with COVID. People have been revealed to be who they are. And it's good to know not just who your enemy is, but how many of them there are. So again, that can be demoralizing, but at least it's information that we can use. But we also need to understand that the worst thing we can do is give up and concede. And I've seen people doing that since the midterm started, however many months ago. The party in power always loses. That's the conventional wisdom, to which I say, 
To pretend that we are in normal times is to give away so much ground that it's mind-blowing that anybody would start from that place. There's nothing normal about the times we're living in. There's nothing commonplace about these midterms. These midterms are going to decide whether or not America is going to be a democracy. It's that simple. And I think given those stakes, for those of us who understand them, it is infuriating to see that it's even close because once again, we see the horse race being given preference over actual analysis of what's happening. And it completely diminishes the importance of where we are, what we're facing, and what needs to happen. So I don't think I'm answering your question because it's so complicated and there's no easy answer because the truth of the matter is, and I'm sorry to say this, that things are going to keep getting worse until we can get to a place where they're not, not to be reductive. But, you know, we really need to accept that. And in the meantime, recognize that we have the power. We have the power to change things. I think, Dolly, you said this recently. What's so clarifying about this moment is that there's one weapon and it's in our hands and it's our ability to vote. So we have to hang on to that. And this is another thing I say a lot, and please don't drink a Coke every time I say it. There are more of us than there are of them. We just need to figure out how to mobilize people in a way that completely short circuits the ability of the other side to manipulate the system, to rig the system, to cheat, lie, and steal, which is the only way they can stay in power. Norm, that's such a great segue to where I wanted to land with you, which is one of the reasons I always have sort of Norm headphones in my ears is because I, I think of you as the consummate systems person, you know, like processes and systems. And I think long before any of us cottoned on to the problem, you were talking about systems that profoundly warp democracy and how to fix them. One of the things that I think changed at the end of this Supreme Court term, if I'm reading the zeitgeist, is that a lot of people said, but how could Dobbs have happened if 70% of Americans didn't want it? How could Bruin, the guns case, happen if 70% of Americans want states to be able to enact meaningful gun control? And that you can blame the Supreme Court. But the fact is, if you can't, thank you, Justice Alito, vote that system to be rectified because your vote is increasingly meaningless, it's not just the Supreme Court. It's the Supreme Court lashed to all of the broken political systems that you and Mary have described. And I think a lot of people understand that now. Yes, they can get out and vote in November, but with the flick of the pen, if the independent state legislature doctrine is in fact blessed by the court, it doesn't matter. What do we do <laughs> to short circuit in this very compressed amount of time? Because I agree completely with both of you. I think we're in like sort of Damocles time where the whole thing can end. What are you telling people to get out and do in addition to vote? And I agree, Mary, that's got to be it. And it's got to be by margins that are unassailable. But there's systems work to do too. And that I think is long-term and it's boring. But that's the work that I think, in addition to simply voting, 
that repair work, whether it's gerrymandering or the Electoral Count Act, all of that stuff needs to get fixed. So I want to ask you a very unfair last question. Uh, which is how do you both lift up, and this goes to Mary's point about the media doesn't care about this stuff, the urgent need for all that systemic repair, and then just very crisply, what systems repair should people be fighting for in addition to going out and voting in November? Sure. You know, one of the things we can reflect back on is the tragedy of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who put the filibuster ahead of preserving democracy. The For the People Act which included a lot of things, including redistricting reform, gerrymandering reform. It's not that independent commissions are perfect. We saw what happened in New York, but it would make a huge difference compared to where we are otherwise. And the way in which districts have been gerrymandered, and it's not just Congress, uh, although that's a big problem. Look at Wisconsin, where you have a majority of voters who vote for Democrats in their assembly and you get two-thirds Republicans. So we're going to end up with this independent state legislature's theory, if it goes through, with outrageously distorted state legislatures basically imposing the views of an increasingly small minority on the majority. And the illegitimacy of that is just astonishing. So one of the things that we need to do, first of all, is to get a billionaire who can be the equivalent of Peter Thiel or this guy who just gave $1.6 billion to Leonard Leo, who is one of the great villains in American history, who has used it to distort the judiciary to accomplish some of these ends and have a more more undemocratic system. But we're not going to be able to do this unless we can hold the House and the Senate and expand the Senate by at least a couple of seats. The Senate, I think, is in play because of Dobbs. And it's not just Democrats and all of us need to find the best way to frame this so that Americans can understand what the stakes are. And we need to have a media that points out the utter hypocrisy of Republican candidates who have said over and over that they want personhood amendments, which would mean that a miscarriage could involve a woman charged with manslaughter or an abortion with murder that are now saying, well, no, I mean, we really didn't mean that or scrubbing their websites. We need to hold people to account. But keep in mind that the combination of tribalism, where people just vote blindly for their own tribe, the fact that a, a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene could win renomination against extremely conservative people, that a Liz Cheney could lose to an absolute nutcase tells us that's a big problem. But the nature of these districts now and the lawlessness in Ohio, where the legislature basically ignored the courts over and over and ended up with an even more distorted set of districts, winning the House is an uphill battle. We have got to frame this in a fashion that, as Mary said, we get an overwhelming reaction enough to keep the two chambers. If we don't do that, then we're not going to be able to deal with any of these structural changes. We have to reform the courts dramatically. And I'm afraid we can't do that without enlarging the Supreme Court, but we also need to shift the jurisdictions of the courts, something we talked about earlier. The Senate is a huge problem, and I don't have a great answer for that, although it's got to start with adding D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. Frankly, I would add American Samoa and the U.S. Virgin Islands as well and create at least a little bit more of a balance. The House 
beyond redistricting reform, we need to enlarge the body. I'd like to add 150 members, which also would have at least a modest impact at reducing the bias in the Electoral College. And we're not going to change that without a constitutional amendment or without a dramatic push for this compact that would at least have states uh, relying on the popular vote. All of those changes, though, are going to be important and necessary. But as you say, this is a short window. If we can't accomplish it this time, there's a piece by Jonathan Weissman in the New York Times that was in yesterday about what would happen in the House if the Republicans win a majority. And the fact is that any people who are in any way reasonable, and there are very few, and those who have spines and backbones, and there are even fewer, they're going to be gone. And it's QAnon conspiracy nuts and all-out Trumpists who are coming in. They are going to basically try and blackmail the Biden administration into dropping all investigations of Donald Trump, or they'll shut down the government or bring us to a default, and they will do those things anyhow. And they will hamstring everything else that's going on. And perhaps, as with decisions like Dobbs, that will push people enough over the edge that we get an even more overwhelming desire to change things. But the last thing we want as a country is to push us into utter chaos and bankruptcy, hoping that will finally wake people up. And that's why the stakes this time are so high, and we need to be sure that we can frame this, get the resources out there to be able to do something about it. And it's not just the House and the Senate this time, it's Secretary of State's positions, it's governors, it's attorneys general, it's state legislatures where you can at least move it to a point where they can't override a veto of a reasonable governor. There has to be a massive mobilization. I don't see it. And tragically, I do not see a press corps that has changed even in the slightest fashion to recognize the imminent threat that we have. They're treating it as business as usual. And in fact, it's getting worse in some quarters rather than better. Norm Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the AEI. He's been involved in political reform for decades. His books, too numerous to mention, include the New York Times and Washington Post bestsellers, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, The Disillusioned, The Desperate, and The Not Yet Deported. Mary Trump is a psychologist and author. Her most recent book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, is an incredibly important deep dive into baked in racism and baked in trauma in American history that must be somehow reckoned with in order to move forward. I just want to say that one of the things the two of you have been for me is a really important locus of the kinds of conversations Norm just said are not always happening in the media. Uh, we can't just entertain. We have to be really, really able to deftly say, this is happening. It's not fun. It's not for clicks. It's occurring under our noses. And I really want to thank both of you for being at the forefront of creating spaces to do just that. So thank you so much for joining me. What a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. And thank you always for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. 
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We will be back with another episode in two short weeks. And until then, do take good care. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.